0: Listen, just listen. I'm Serendipity Theatre Collective company member Rick Walker, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theatre Collective's festival of stories, wine, and music, a collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, Sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. find out more about second story, our performers and our performances. Visit us at storiesandwine.com. And now, novelist and teacher, Doug Whippo. When I was 21 years old, I suffered my first real heartbreak. My girlfriend, Kate left me for an older, more successful guy, and I was absolutely crushed. It was one of those kind of breakups, you know what I mean? I was ruined, heartbroken, life meant nothing. And so, I holed up in my stinky little studio apartment and watched endless hours of TV and ate endless amounts of junk food and talked nonsense to my cat, a stray tabby that I would nicknamed Frodo Baggins whose unquestioning gaze and twitching tail seemed like the only thing in the world capable of understanding my pain. Then, late one night in December, close to the holidays, as I sat around marinating in my own self-pity, there was a pounding at my front door and a frantic ringing of the doorbell. I'd fallen asleep watching an episode of Cops with a bag of Doritos for comfort food. I roused myself from the sofa and opened the door, and standing there, skulking in the darkness, backlit with shadowy streetlights, was my older brother, Mitch, a big, wide, cockeyed grin spread across his face. He was thinner, more gaunt, more hunched about the shoulders since I'd last seen him the previous year when he'd showed up at my doorstep unannounced. Now he just looked spent, wasted by his own energy or anger or whatever it was that drove him. Hey, little brother, he said, waltzing right past me into my apartment. You look like crap. He talked as if I'd seen him just the day before. It's a little late for a visit, don't you think, I said, but he just ignored me and flopped himself down on the sofa, nearly sitting on my cat, which dashed down the hallway. You got any weed, he asked. No, I said. Now, if you have an older sibling, you know what it means to be oppressed. Mitch was my older brother by five years, and when we were growing up, he became an expert at devising very specific tortures for his one and only little brother, which was me. He was like my own personal Torquemada, and in his eyes, I was a heretic. Such is the lot of the younger, weaker sibling. Mitch loved the milk torture. This is where he would take a big gulp of milk and swish it around in his mouth for a few seconds, which made his saliva real thick and viscous and gooey. After swallowing the milk, he would hunt me down, pin my shoulders to the floor with his knees, and proceed to let a long, thin stream of milky white saliva drip slowly out of his mouth until it hung an inch above my nose. And just at the point of no return, when I thought my whole face would be covered in a massive gob of milk spit, he would suck it all back up into his mouth, like a film strip in reverse. I know, it's disgusting. One time he tricked me into eating a sandwich with Limburger cheese on it. And if you don't know, Limburger is just about the most disgusting, smelliest cheese ever made. It smells like something dead pulled out of a river. And he made a big show about how delicious it was, and what do I know? know? Older brothers know everything, right? So I took a big bite, and then I had the taste of something dead pulled out of a river in my mouth for a week. Also during my childhood, Mitch had convinced me that he possessed the authority to put me up for adoption whenever he wanted fuck. He referred to some obscure law that granted firstborn sons this special privilege, and he could act on it when deemed necessary. He made vague references to the agency, and if ever I pissed him off, wouldn't do his chores, or was found to be generally annoying, he would look me dead in the eye, put a cupped hand to his ears if to make a phone call, and say in a devilish whisper, hmm... I guess it's about time I checked in with the agency. My allowance money vanished on a regular basis. At the age of 10, I tried beer for the first time, courtesy of Mitch, Paps Blue Ribbon. He told me it was Coca-Cola. At 11, I tried chewing tobacco with him, too. I was nauseous for three days. At At 12, when I was 12, I did my first bong hit, listening to Leonard Skinner just before going to my Aunt Eunice's funeral. The funeral was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. My mother made me kneel in front of the casket to say a prayer, and I burst into hysterical laughter. Afterwards, I was told that I was grounded for the rest of my life. Somehow, For some strange reason, I always forgave Mitch. It's a mystery how he could get away with so much, but I guess I was spellbound by his wild charm, his switchblade eyes, and his will. When he was 18, he took off, ran away, disappeared. He didn't even bother to finish high school. And weeks later, I started to receive postcards from him, and he was in Montana, working on a farm, in Alaska, on a fishing boat, in Florida, living on a beach. And while my father buried himself in work, my mother would sit on the porch and smoke cigarettes, searching the horizon as if any minute Mitch would appear, ambling home with his cockeyed grin. And eventually he did return and lived with friends and lost himself in drink and drugs and fights. The good times, he called it. He'd take me to lunch sometimes after school, take me over to Little Louie's hot dog stand, and we'd sit on benches in the park across the street, and he would look at me and say, sometimes you just got to go your own way, kid. But it seemed like something resigned was seeping into his bones, and later he'd disappear again. One time he came home for Thanksgiving, and he showed up drunk and high, and he and my father fought terribly, tumbling through the house and out the front door onto the lawn for all the neighbors to see. And then at 21, he decided to go straight. Talked about going to college, studying botany or something. But one night, he was out drinking and broke into a store to steal some beer and got caught by the police, who he beat up pretty badly. And then, in drunken remorse, used the policeman's walkie-talkie to call for backup. (laughs) He spent a year or so in prison down in Statesville. He'd call sometimes, The Stories I Heard. But he was out in time to see me graduate from high school, and he helped me move into my apartment when I started, when I started college, and then he was gone again. And I imagined him off on some wild adventure in the bush in Africa, or all of a sudden he's a lobsterman off the coast of Maine, or tramping through South America with some wild-eyed girl in tow, reinventing himself everywhere as if one life wasn't enough or there wasn't enough world for him. And that night in December, when he came back to see me, returning from nowhere, it was just like always. His eyes settled on me. He looked me up and down from head to toe like one of those MRI machines, and he just knew me. He knew my heart. He knew my secrets. He knew my pain. So, what's going on, he said. And I trembled and confessed like some repentant sinner and told him all about my lost love and painted a picture of my heartbreak where, of course, I was the victim of romantic injustice. And he just sat there taking it all in. And looking back on it, I know what I told him must have been the biggest sad sack, self-pitying story ever, but he listened intently, frowning, like a doctor hearing the ailments of a patient. And when I was done, he was on his feet, giving me one of his I-got-it-all-figured-out looks and snapping his fingers like a drumbeat, saying, "'I know exactly what you need, kid.' And his eyes roamed the corners and tables of my apartment, and he rifled through the mess on my desk and pulled out two pieces of notebook paper. I lay curled up on the couch and watched his madness. "'What you need, kid,' he said with a grand flourish, "'is a paper airplane.' For fuck's sake, I cried. But he would have none of it. He yanked me to my feet and made me watch as he nimbly folded and creased and constructed two fine paper airplanes. You know, the kind of airplanes you make in grade school and sail across the room when the teacher's writing something on the chalkboard, that kind. And where he got the notion that this was the remedy for my all-important heartbreak, I have no idea.